This is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. In the fall of 1955, a scandal broke. Boys had created a male youth prostitute circle. Suddenly it was portrayed. This is infecting our community. They were concerned about illegal activities and how it affects their teenage sons. No, there may be 100 to 125 boys involved, and we don't know how many adults. It did not seem possible that this community ever harbored homosexuals to ravage our youth. It seemed like once it started, it was like a, an avalanche. It just started and it gained momentum. Of the six actually arrested so far, all have been accused of acts with minors. But the eventual consequence hoped for is to rid the area of all homosexuals. I found out years later that my dad had uh, practiced homosexuality in the uh, Boise community. It got to be to the point where every day he was going to be next. One of the police officers that knew him came to him and said, you better leave town because they're coming after you. No matter what is required, this sordid mess must be removed from this community. There weren't many people who were asking, what can the schools do? What can the churches do? So let's get rid of them. Uh, people wouldn't let my friends play with me anymore. I know they threw rocks at the house and the windows and gunshots were fired. I remember one evening when he was sitting home in the middle of the night with the lights out and a shotgun across his lap. And I think people were looking under their own beds. It is evident that no one is being spared. And uh, maybe it became sort of a witch hunt. And it, it, it probably could have happened in any community. With us on the phone is... Uh as the director of a documentary uh, that takes a historical look at uh, what has happened in Boise that uh, is relevant in uh, today's um, uh, news about uh, the congressman from uh, Idaho. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Seth. Thank you very much, Dan. Good to, good to be talking to you today. Uh, Seth. Yes. Can you hear? I can hear you just fine. Thank you. Uh, I'm having a little trouble hearing. Will you say something again? Oh, yeah. Welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. Yeah, sorry. Turn up the Alan Verda on the other line. He's the historian for the film. And uh, he's an archivist. At Boise State University, that's correct. Yes. And Seth, uh, Seth Rando is the director of this film, uh, which is called uh, Four of 55. The Four of 55. Um, you wrote an, you, both of you wrote an op-ed in New York Times this weekend. Um, why did you do that? Well, we were contacted by the New York Times requesting that we put the Larry Craig scandal into a little historical context based on what happened in Boise in 1955, and based on their request, we put together this editorial piece looking at the 1955 scandal and looking at the recent events with Senator Craig through the lens of the 1955 scandal. Are there any parallels? There, there certainly are some parallels because some of the cases that happened in 1955 happened in 
in a similar way in that some of the contact in 1955 was also men who met each other in a, in a bathroom. So it was, uh, there were certainly parallels there. There were parallels we drew with one particular case that we mentioned in the article, the case of a bank vice president who was arrested. And we write in the article that Larry Craig's recent change of heart about his guilty plea recalls the lament from that, that bank vice president because he later was quoted as saying, I pleaded guilty on the advice of my attorney because he stated with all the publicity and stink that had been raised, there was nothing else I could do. I knew my life was ruined anyway and threw myself on the mercy of the court. And so we certainly found some parallels between the recent Craig case and what happened in Boise in 1955. And he was acquitted. The bank vice president actually went to prison. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. Uh, so the the other parallel is uh, is the... Uh, do you feel that there's a witch hunt going on uh, right now to get him out of office? And in the in Boise in '55, there w- there seemed to be a witch hunt uh, to kick people out of town. There's certainly this is Alan Verda speaking. There certainly was. I think probably the, the closest parallel is is the media frenzy that all of a sudden broke out. Uh, you know when this was announced. I mean in, in Boise in the fall of 1955 the uh, we went through this sort of uh, publicity and, 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 and media furor for, oh my gosh, all fall. Uh, this was rather quick and, and short in one week, but that, that certainly is a parallel. You know, Larry Craig certainly feels it's a witch hunt against himself, and I think he did uh, use that term, didn't he, Seth, in one of, his, he, yes. one of his press conferences. So he certainly sees the parallel in that, and I would imagine any any man or woman, whoever they are, who had the press uh, investigating their sex life for over the course of the winter would probably feel that uh, that there is some some sort of uh, witch hunt against them. Uh, you know, whether one can say it's justified or not, certainly in the person's view, they they were subject to a witch hunt. And in Boise in 1955, one thing that was very different was the community was. Uh, became embroiled in such a furor over these events that they literally attempted to root out all gay men from the community. And that's something that certainly hasn't happened with the Craig case. It was more isolated specifically toward the newspaper's investigation of Craig and previous allegations of Craig, and then this sting that was happening at the airport, which was set up to try to prevent men from having sex in bathrooms. But the sting was actually in Minneapolis. Right. Um, in terms of uh, historical parallels, the other diff- the one difference, I suppose, is, is that uh, the, were there a lot of teenagers soliciting sex in the uh, toilets uh, in '55? Well, it wasn't just the uh, just the toilets. It was it, it was also it was also parks, and it was teenagers uh, meeting meeting each other and meeting adults in in various different fashions. So that is something that was different from the Larry Craig case, and that some of these Boise cases involved teenagers. Did the um, was there? There was no distinction then between uh, you know uh, the teenagers considered uh, part of uh, homosexuals, whereas today they seem to consider teenagers uh, like um, children. There was a difference in the laws back then uh, uh, in in Idaho in 1955. The, there was a breaking point at age 16. You know, oh, okay, it was 16. Okay. The, the crime was lewd and lascivious behavior with a minor under 16, or else it was just plain uh, what was then called the crime against nature. 
But remember, in the homosexual context in 1955, the age difference didn't matter. I mean, there was no age of consent for, for gay sex in 1955. All, all gay sex was, was illegal and remained illegal in the state of Idaho until the uh, Texas case just, what, uh, three or four years ago. So, so in, in 1955, uh, yes, people may draw some sort of, sort of moral distinction between the younger teens and, and people over 18, and there were a number of cases involving adults over 18, but that really was all irrelevant because any sort of, of uh, gay sex in Idaho was, was uh, illegal in and, and as well as California. And, uh, and some of the consenting adults, uh, some of the sex instances that were prosecuted took place in their homes. Uh, oh. uh-huh. you know, it was not all public. This, this in, involved people going to other people's homes, and, and that sort of sex was prosecuted too in 1955. So was it was there a unit in the police to track homosexuals at the time? There was one created. This is Alan Burda speaking again. Ah. There was one created during during this uh, uh, episode. And uh, on a parallel track, the state of Idaho also created a mental health unit in its uh, uh, Department of of Health. And we were able to, uh, in fact, Seth went to visit with the man who was brought in to Boise during this period to head up the new mental health unit. Uh, at that time, the more progressive voices in the community saw homosexuality uh, uh, as, as uh, a medical or mental problem as opposed to a criminal problem. They, they, they were the, quote, liberals on this issue. <laughs> they, were the, they considered them sexually disordered uh, yes, individuals. So as yeah. opposed to criminals. And, and right. that and then was the enlightened uh-huh. view of homosexuality. Mm. And earlier, Alan mentioned the the, uh, the laws. It's worth noting that those laws against homosexuality are still on the books in Idaho, even though they can't be enforced because of the Supreme Court's decision. Hmm. Several years ago, Idaho lawmakers have taken no steps to remove those laws from the books, and based on the political climate of the state, I can't imagine a time in the near future where they will attempt to remove them from the books. So the, in the in the 55, was, the, was a lot of it also tea room sex, uh, like surveillance of restrooms? And sting operations in the in the in the men's rooms. No, not, no, I don't know that they were really sting operations because these were all operate. Every case that was actually prosecuted involved uh, two partners. So, uh, mm. so there was an accuser in every case. There was an accuser in every case, and the way it actually started is a a uh, juvenile probation officer who was in charge of a number of boys who might be called juvenile delinquents. Because if you remember the 1950s, if, if there were three fears in American society, it was communism, juvenile delinquency, and homosexuality. <laughs> so, and this tapped into all three of it, those. It tapped into right. to, uh, to all three. And there was a juvenile probation officer who, in the course of counseling young men, who were, I guess you'd call juvenile delinquents, mentioned that they had been having sex with uh, older men. And he became very alarmed at that. Uh, he brought it to the attention of the authorities. And the police and the prosecutors and, and, and the sheriff really were too slow to react, in his opinion. They sort of, you know, there was the attitude, things go on, you know, and, and it wasn't, they weren't going to get involved. So he got a private church group to fund a private investigator hmm. to step in and investigate these people. 
and he was the person who actually made the first arrest. And once he made the first couple of arrests, the newspaper created such a furor that the police and prosecutors and sheriffs all of a sudden were tripping over themselves to show that they had not been asleep on the job, that they mm-hmm. were they were doing what they had to do. The newspaper was using really uh, inflammatory language like crush the monster and this mess must be removed, trying to get the community to take action against against mm. uh, against this. And as we demonstrate in the film, after the newspaper made its first appeal, there was, uh, after the original arrest, there was still kind of a lull where no arrests happened. And then the arrest of the bank vice president came, and the newspaper once again had a, another emotional appeal uh, that they did not believe it was possible that that homosexuals uh, that the community harbored homosexuals to ravage the uh, the youth of the community because at that time there was not a clear distinction between homosexuals and pedophiles or child molesters which there's there's a great big difference and that was not clear at the time for for society so when the newspaper came out with these with this second emotional editorial and when the police department finally felt pressure to take over the case, that's when finally this investigation in Boise exploded and went from four arrests to 16 and the, in the interrogation of, of hundreds of people. And uh, I, I believe uh, from reading uh, John Jurassic's account uh, called The Boys of Boise, which he published in 1966, uh, um, I remember reading that and the reason it ended was this witch hunt ended was because it reached too close into the upper echelons of the society? Well, the final arrest was a local theater director who was actually extradited back from from San Francisco. He had he had moved away to San Francisco once the once this investigation had really gathered steam and the sheriff drove from Boise to San Francisco in January in in the middle of winter and snow to bring this man back to Boise. Well, the man uh, who was arrested had been accused by the son of a prominent city council member. Hmm. And then suddenly after that, there were no more arrests. Draw your own conclusion there. And there may have been, who knows, what what motivations were there. When, When the whole case broke earlier in the fall, president of the city council was one of the most vociferous and demanding that the police do something, the sheriff do something, uh, really pushing hard. And then in the course of the investigation, what does the sheriff find out? <laughs> well, the city councilman's own son perhaps had a dalliance with one of these men. Uh, and so I don't know who, who can say what the motivation was in mm-hmm. arresting the man. I'll tell you, though, that the the son of the city councilman was had had uh, this this offense had supposedly taken place a couple years earlier. Uh, the son of the city councilman was at West Point, New York, uh, in the U.S. Military Academy, wow. and uh, uh, it ended his military career. Uh, it was really a wrenching and terrible, terrible uh, thing for that young man to be drawn into this case, and it ended up becoming a, a, a painful thing for his family as well because he was booted out of West Point and he eventually would go on to commit suicide. Okay. It was one of the most devastating and telling stories of the consequences that um, through this. And something that's, else that's really interesting to note, the accusers in these cases, most of the accusers 
did not want to be accusers. Uh, out, of, out of the 16 arrests, seven, seven of them were tied to two individuals who were pressured, essentially, by police to either um, either confess what they knew or you know, either we'll go after you unless you tell hmm. us what you know. And did, did, were you able to find uh, records of uh, in the archives of uh, of the testimony and uh, and be able to interview some of these uh, people? Many of the people who are connected to these cases have passed away. Mm. And during the five-year process of researching the film, we contacted as many of the survivors as we could find, and very few were reluctant to talk either on or off the record. We have an interview with the man who was brought back to Boise from San Francisco. It's the only known recorded interview with one of the men who was arrested. He passed away after we started doing our research, Mm. and we actually found the interview through an author named Jonathan Ned Katz, who had interviewed this man in the early 1970s. Right, for his gay American history work. Right, exactly. Yeah. Did, yeah uh, a transcript of that interview in uh, gay American history. Right. And Did, with, the, with the other records, we looked through records of all sorts of uh, different varieties, through different, uh, different levels of court records, through prison records, through newspapers over a period of several years. I did research at the One Institute Archive in Los Angeles, which is a a repository of gay history items. Alan did research at the Library of Congress. We did research in Salt Lake City and all throughout the state of Idaho and other locations in California, did interviews in California and Oregon and Idaho. In our attempt to find as many people who would talk about these cases as possible. And I think it ends up there were quite a few who would talk, but very few were willing to uh, sit before a camera. Oh, right, right. And and I guess that's perhaps understandable. Of the survivors, of course, most are passed away now. Uh, I remember seeing at a gay film festival a a surveillance film from from the Midwest, I I don't think it was Idaho, of uh, surveillance of restrooms um, by the police. And uh, there was some footage of restroom surveillance. And did you come across anything like that? No, the, no, nothing, nothing quite like that. Yeah, not, not in 1955 in, in Boise. Uh, now there's an interesting case uh, uh, in 1920 when there was indeed surveillance of restrooms in Boise, and that created a minor stir in town because one of the men involved was was a prominent uh, local. Uh, public official, a political party officer of the Republican Party. But that was pretty much a localized case in, in 19, uh, 1920. Uh, you know, that, that period there was also a witch hunt in the Naval Air Station in Rhode Absolutely. Island. 1919. 1919. And uh, Roosevelt had something. Yeah, Roosevelt was Naval Secretary. And, That's right. And, had, and the reason I bring it up is because uh, in that case, it was also an individual who got took it upon himself to investigate. And usually, these cases seems to seem to rely on one dogged individual who wants to expose this. Sure, that that's the case for Boise's case. Uh, another one in 1912, there was a big scandal in Portland, Oregon, involving the YMCA. <laughs> and it's rather ironic in that this case, the crusading newspaper who who was going to uh, expose all this uh, going on in the Portland YMCA was really a left-leaning newspaper. The YMCA was viewed as a as a center of bourgeois privilege, uh, huh. and it was actually 
actually a left left leftist paper that, that took up the uh, uh, the banner to to create all the the public furor about uh, the YMCA in Portland, Oregon. And oh, it's oh. also important yeah. to note that the Boise scandal was was far from being the only homosexual scandal in the 1950s because there was uh, well, there was another scandal in 1955 in Sioux City hmm. which is documented in the book Sex Crime Panics uh-huh, uh-huh. there was the the man who was brought to Idaho to head up the mental health department had worked for the military previous to this and had experience investigating homosexuality for the military after World War II when the military attempted to purge homosexuals because at the time homosexuals were viewed as being possibly a link to communism, it it sounds far fetched now, but there was a belief that homosexuals had had uh, less personal integrity, a weaker moral fiber, and could be more susceptible to blackmail, and so therefore homosexuals could be an in for communism, which today just sounds completely preposterous. But it was actually written about in the New York Times. Right, for sure. Uh, that paper in Oregon. What was the name of that paper? The leftist paper. Uh, you know, I can't bring that up. I, I don't know that uh, off the top of my head. I'd have to get into my files to look at that. Ah. Did, so, from doing all this research, did it? Um, what was your reaction to all this stuff that came out? Uh, did it change your opinion of what happened, or, or not? In 1955, you mean? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I, I, you know, the basic outlines were there in, in John Jurassic's book. I think. Stuff may differ a little bit. I don't know or, or agree that, uh, in terms of the cold hard facts, John Jurassic in 1966 did a pretty, pretty good job. And, and uh, both of us read the book before, uh, uh, before we actually got into any archival research on his own. We differ a lot with his conclusions and and some of his uh, uh, social theories that he he advances. But in terms of reporting the facts, mm-hmm. uh, he was pretty good and, and almost. Most of the hard facts, most, most, uh, you know, not every single one really proved out. But we had the benefit of 40 more years beyond him, and so there was a lot of things that had not played out when he wrote his book. So, uh, so I think I don't think I was really surprised with what we found, uh, but but it, it, I think the personal stories that emerged when 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 you get to know who were the accusers and the accused, what their personal situations were. Boise in 1955 were fewer than 40,000 residents. So these weren't instances of, of, of unknown people having anonymous sex. Everybody who read the articles, you know, either knew the people or had, had a relative who knew them. It was a very personal thing. And when we were able to get into the personal stories and, and then learn, learn the histories of these people, that was, that was really, it made it less of an academic exercise and, and really a series of human interest stories with tragic consequences. And in the making of the film, that was primarily my interest, was exploring the consequences. What mm-hmm. happened to the community? What happened to the individuals who were connected to these cases, both the accusers and the accused? What happened to the family? What were the ongoing consequences 50 years after this happened? How did how did the events of 1955 continue to haunt people and continue to haunt the community? And it was certainly evident when we were doing the research because there were plenty of doors slammed in our faces, so to speak. For instance, the prosecutor at the time, the main prosecutor, I sent him a letter and then followed it up with a phone call. 
And when I talked to him on the phone, he hung up on me. And I wasn't doing, wasn't being combative or anything like that. He just hung up on me because he didn't want to talk about these cases. And I thought that, I thought that was really, um, really disappointing that a person who is in a position of, of responsibility like that in the 1950s wouldn't be willing to stand up for himself and for his investigation. So in the film, we end up using an archival interview with the, with the deputy prosecutor who was nice enough to meet with me, but again, like so many others, refused to talk on camera. Hmm. It's just very interesting to see the, the impact for, for different people with this scandal. One, one other uh, interesting case, I contacted one of the men who had been arrested as part of the scandal and prosecuted, and he does not live in Idaho anymore. We had a very nice conversation over the phone, and I, at the end of the phone call, I said, well, would you be interested in having us fly you out to Idaho so you could come back and see Boise and talk and we'll do an interview? And then, and he seemed like he might be interested in it. And the next day, I received a phone call from his sister saying, leave my brother alone. Don't ever call him again. <laughs> oh, my it, God. It, it was really telling for me to see that it was more yeah. meaningful for the sister than it was for the man who had been prosecuted. Hmm. This was devastating for many families. Sure. And not just people who were prosecuted, but also people who were subject to innuendo, which is something we talk about in the film. There was one man who... There were a lot of people who were accused who may or may not have been guilty or were the subject of innuendo or speculation. And one man who was the subject of innuendo ended, uh, that we, we discuss in the film ended up leaving Boise because it was just too painful for his family to, to, to uh, in, the, in the time that followed the scandal, to continue to be the subject of rumor and innuendo. What what happened to the director that uh, came back from was taken back from San Francisco? He ended up. He was the one who passed away in 2000. I want to say right yeah, r- really right when that. we were starting r- right when we were starting work on the film. He was in fact one of the easiest people to find because did, he has a, had a distinctive name. Did he go to jail? Or? What's that? Did he go to jail? Yes, yes, he hmm. was in prison. And actually, one I don't know whether you played the clip that takes place in the the prison. We have a clip at our website, follow55.com, that shows the the inside of the prison building where these men were kept. That was actually an interview with that man, the theater director who was brought back from San Francisco. How long did he serve? I can't remember off the top oh. of my head. It was it was a couple years. The ironic thing is, as he also said in the interview, as he, uh, of course, uh, was jailed for... Uh, for the crime of homosexuality, but he went to uh, went to prison and promptly found a boyfriend in prison. A boxer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh boy. Um, do you do you feel that were you surprised that uh, in Larry Craig's case that they were still doing um, uh, putting police in restrooms? Uh, no, I I was not. I I think that that is a you know public sex or, or sex in public places is a problem that many people are. Concerned about. I can certainly understand the fear of a mother who sends her, you know, eight-year-old son into the restroom and waits at the door. I read one commentary in the, mm-hmm. in the newspaper where where one mother said, you know, she stands by the bathroom door and eyes every man who goes into the restroom while her son is in there. So there is a great fear of sex going on in places like that. So I'm not at all surprised that uh, that, that there is still surveillance. Uh, In in this area, in the Boise area, a number of years ago, after we started work on the film, there was 
a similar sting, not in bathrooms, but in a um, an island along the Boise River where apparently men were were uh, cruising and meeting meeting up for sex. There was a similar sting, so I wasn't surprised at all that with the with the investigation. I was surprised at the allegations focused on Larry Craig. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not because there hadn't been speculation. I mean, I've been hearing speculation for, for well over a decade, but that he would be caught up in something like that was really quite surprising, quite shocking. And at first, I didn't know what to think. Because I was surprised that he was cruising the Union Station near Congress in Washington, D.C., because I've gone into that restroom, and people are so blatant there. there there's like totally open sex going on, and uh, right in the restroom of the Union Station, which is a few blocks from the, you know, away from the Congress. And that's and that's one of the allegations. We certainly can't speak to whether Larry Craig is or is not gay or is or is not bisexual or is or is not cruising bathrooms, although those rumors have been going around for a while now. Right, yeah. And uh, it was the, but in the case of the uh, Boise uh, people who were busted, they were more, they were Homosexual identified, they were not closeted in 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 the sense of not liking themselves. Actually, many of the men were married. Oh, they were. Okay. Yes, a number of the men were married. And one man who went to prison, he was the oldest of the men. I think he was in his young fifties. He went to prison for a few years, and he got out, and he reunited with his wife, and they both died in their in their nineties. So he came came out of prison and 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 was with his wife for another uh, another forty years. Well I, well, I guess we're up to the end of our time here. Uh, I want to thank you both very much for being on on such short notice. And thank, uh, thank you for the invitation, Dan. Yeah, and let me know when the film shows in this area or is available on DVD. <laughs> we'll do that. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. We have a distributor, Frameline. Oh yeah. And we'll also announce screenings and DVDs at the website fallof55.com. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Dan. Bye. Uh, so that was uh, the director and the uh, historical consultant for the film uh, of um, film um, four of fifty-five. Uh, they both wrote an uh, op-ed in the New York Times on Saturday, uh, detailing the historical antecedents to the Larry Craig uh, incident. Uh, now we're going to do our Labor Day um, labor uh, focus, and uh, please stay tuned. We'll be focusing on labor conditions in Vietnam. Today we're going to be focusing on Vietnam as a special Labor Day uh, edition of Subversity here on Dan, uh, with Dan Sang. Uh, with us uh, online is Angie Ngoc Tran, who is an associate professor at Cal State uh, University, Monterey Bay, uh, in political economy, and she's done a lot of research uh, in Vietnam on uh, workers there. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I just met you in Kuala Lumpur at a conference, uh, International Convention of Asia Scholars, and you gave a paper there. What what was your paper about? Yes. Well, first of all, um, thanks so much for for asking me to participate in this uh, in this uh, radio interview. It's uh, we're laboring on Labor Day. Right. We're working. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, yes. Um, the, um, the the paper that I presented at uh, um, ICAST five in Kuala Lumpur is basically looking at the role of the labor press. Um, as I argued in one of my um, recent articles, which will come out um, in Labor Studies Journal in September, is the emerging role of the labor newspapers, which is still a, um, a form, an official form of the labor union in Vietnam. But my argument is that 
um, they are cracking up a space um, to um, basically respond to workers' spontaneous action, collective action, i.e. strikes, or a space for workers to complain about various labor violations in Vietnam. And um, because of that action, um, uh, local labor unions at different levels, at the district level, at the city level, um, would respond, would, would intervene um, in those uh, um, labor uh, disputes, um, most of the time on workers' behalf. Um, and then that would bring about um, corrective actions um, on management side. Um, the problem, uh, the problem, however, is that uh, on the man- on the management side, um, they would often um, appease to workers' collective action, um, just to the point that they would stop striking, or they would stop, you know, their work stoppage and go back to work. Uh, but then, soon after, they would return to those behaviors. So it's not a long-term uh, thing that they would do. It's a little bit uh, interesting because. Uh you know, we're in the United States, and I don't see newspapers exposing labor conditions that much here. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's amazing. In a socialist country, I mean, uh, I think that's a very progressive, very, very good aspect of the labor press that I that I, I would like to shed light on. Yeah. Because, uh, true, structurally, it's still part and parcel of the state structure. But, right. But, um, but, but if, if, if one looks at the... Um, uh, activities, its activities on the ground. One will see that it, it's having quite, a, quite an amazing um, autonomous um, action. I mean, still, it still has to respond to um, the agenda uh, policies of the state and of the labor unions. But it, it is striking a very, very interesting uh, line that I that I would like for us to to pay attention to. And you can find more. Um, details, more evidence for that in my upcoming article in the Labor Studies Journal in September. Now, is this, uh, pa- are these papers like Lao Dong and other papers like that? Yes, uh, mostly coming from Nui Lao Dong, which is the laborer. Um, the laborer is mm-hmm. um, a labor press that is the official forum of the Ho Chi Minh City Labor Federation. Um, Lian Duan, Lao Dong, I think, Ho Chi Minh. And um, I focus on that because it covers uh, most of the strikes which are concentrating in the south of Vietnam. This is not to say that then there are no strikes in, in other parts of the country. Yes, there are. But most of the tri- strikes tend to concentrate in the south of Vietnam, um, and especially in Ho Chi Minh City area and the surrounding uh, uh, provinces. So the laborer, the Nui Lao Dong, has a very dedicated group of journalists who are assigned to different um, um, EPZ areas in, in, in Ho Chi Minh City and in surrounding areas uh, to, to report and cover strikes um, as soon as um, it's erupted. Now, um, one of the things that is discussed in that conference um, paper is that um, workers are very proactive. Mm-hmm. They don't just sit there and, 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 and accept, you know, their fate, quote-unquote, being oppressed. They, um, they have it, not all, but many of them have cell phones, and they know <laughs> the newspaper's headquarters in, 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 in Saigon. They either call uh-huh. the, the journalists directly, or they would go there to report on these labor violations. So as soon as the newspapers know 
about these uh, impending strikes, they would immediately, um, um, you know, dispatch uh, news uh, journalists to those areas and, and cover the strikes. And as soon as they learned about these impending strikes, they would inform um, local authorities, local unions, and uh, um, local uh, people's committees to um, to dissent on, 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 on that strike scene, to uh, negotiate with management. Well, uh, most often the labor unions at the enterprise level um, are very weak. Um, why they're weak? Well, this is the reason. Structurally, they're not working full-time for the union. Hmm. They are working part-time. In a sense, they are, they are employees to themselves, hence they are receiving salaries and wages from the management. Mm-hmm. And they're working, they're working on labor union activities at a, on a part-time basis. Because of that, most of them are, I would say, and, and the newspapers report on this widely, they're compromised. They have kind of a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. So, so that they're not they're not effective. They're not strong in responding to um, workers' uh, demands and requests. So, but the point that I'm making here is that one has to look at the more uh, complex structure of the labor unions. It's, it's, it's hierarchical. It 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 has many levels. So, at the lowest level, um, at the, at the enterprise level, if it's not working, at the higher level, which is the district and city level. Um, um, labor unions would be much more effective because they are paid full-time mm. by the, um, I'm using a, an acronym, the Vietnamese General Confederation of Labor, VGCL, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to work full-time and, and to respond immediately to workers' uh, requests. Do they, uh, I've seen a chart you've done at a previous uh, conference of yeah. uh, the number of strikes um, mm-hmm. every year. It seems like hundreds. Uh, it seems quite a bit. Um, these are at foreign-owned enterprises, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, um, in terms of the types of ownership, yes, it is true. Um, most strikes still take place in uh, FDI, which is foreign directed investment uh, companies. Um, um, how, and then secondly, uh, in private uh, um, domestic companies, and then lastly, in state-owned companies. Um, two things, I want to make sure that they... Um, have my point across here. One is that if one looks at, um, if one compare and contrast the first six months of strikes of this year to the first six months of strikes last year, drastic decrease in the number of strikes. One can attribute that to the kind of FDI, pro-FDI policy of the Vietnamese government um, um, in, in, in recent years, um, which, trying to, which is trying to you know, create a kind of environment that is conducive for FDI companies to come in and set up shops in Vietnam. Secondly, um, the fact that you see a decrease in um, strikes or labor dissatisfaction in state-owned companies, that doesn't mean that um, workers' conditions, working conditions are, are, are okay in, in, in state-owned companies. The, 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 um, the, the protests and um, the dissatisfaction are reflected in different ways. Um, Mm. Most likely in protest letters, protest letters sent to the labor newspapers, or to labor courts, or to um, local government. How, how, so, so it yeah. is handled differently than the strikes in FBI companies. How effective is the ILO in Vietnam? I know the in Hanoi there's an ILO International Labor Organization office there. Absolutely, uh, yes, yes. They, 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 they're, they're nice group of people. I I, I talked to them um, almost every time I, I I went to Vietnam. I just got back from Vietnam about over a week ago. Um, 
um, uh, some of the leaders there were away on vacation, so I could not uh, have a conversation with them. They are very. They've been. They've been in Vietnam for a long time, and they've been conducting a lot of um, um, training um, um, sessions um, to increase the kind of um, capacity training, if you will, and also looking at the issue of collective bargaining agreement (CBA). Right. Um, however, my my um, my my um, concern about all of these training is that yes, they 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 have a lot of good ideas about tripartite. Um, Structure, you know, bringing the three sides together, the state, the management, and the little unions, and CBA trainings, but not much on implementation of, 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 of these trainings. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't seen um, studies about the effectiveness of these trainings. Yes, I, I support, you know, these, um, these, these training activities, but I would like to see more um, effectiveness or the implementation of, of these training sessions. Would you say that the the press in the South is much more uh, kind of uh, supportive of labor rights than the press in the North? That's an interesting question. Um, I would not um, immediately, um, um, you know, um, it, it tended to say yes on that. But but let me give you an example that I would be a little bit hesitant to to say yes on that. In the wave of the minimum wage strike which took place at the end of 2005, um, for 10 days, uh, December 28th, 2005 to January 7th, 2006. Well, true, the laborer, the, the, the newspaper in the South, um, played a vital role, which I uh, expressed, uh, discussed in my article coming out, um, um, you know, this fall, um, in, in covering the strike. But this is an interesting thing. Um, because they, the laborer was right at the scene, they can cover all of these uh, uh, strikes that were erupted in FBI companies um, in Lingjung 1 EPZ, uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Mm-hmm. They, they covered a lot of those critical um, uh, articles, which basically um, create a turning point uh, for this whole struggle, labor struggle, which then brought all of the, you know, the stakeholders to the negotiating table, which then... Uh, got to the resolution of uh, Molisa, which is Ministry of Labor, Invalids, and Social Affairs, and um, and the VGCL, which is the labor union. And then with that resolution, um, then the prime minister would have to agree to sign a decree, number three, to raise the minimum wage to 40%, effective um, February of, of last year, 2006. Wow. While they were doing that, while the laborer were doing that, they did get into some some kind of a complaint, or I would say some sort of a problem with the local authorities who were saying that are you then um, perpetuating these strikes by supporting the workers? Well, they said no. You know, we are a worker state. We're supposed to support workers, and that they, they got into somewhat of a trouble there. Then the the the, 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 the newspaper from the north, the Labour, the Laudum, jumped oh. in to help by by then covering more critical interviews with the then, <clears throat> the then president of the GCL, Mr. Mrs. Kuti Ho, uh, which was basically supporting um, these, uh, these, these, these uh, medium wage strikes. So, so in a sense, they were, in, in, uh, they were allies. You know, they were in alliance with each other in, 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 in the response to, to workers' uh, workers' uh, resistance. So uh, during that kind of a critical time. So, so I, I, I'd say that... Um, um, they, 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 they are in alliance. And 
the fact that we see more things happening in the South is because most strikes tend to concentrate in the South of Vietnam, as I mentioned earlier. And most of those uh, foreign investment firms are in the South. Is yes, right? true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then they're also spreading. Now, the, 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 the recent trend is that they are moving away from the cities um, to set up shops, set up plants in surrounding provinces. Long An, for example, we're just looking at the, the latest news this morning, hmm. that there was a strike uh, in the Sanitex company, Taiwanese-owned, mm-hmm. in Long An, which is uh, west of Ho Chi Minh City, in the um, um, uh, Mekong Delta region, but because it is outside of big cities like Ho Chi Minh City and, and Hanoi, the minimum wage is only $49 a month. Wow. And that is, that is the, the trend of these um, um, of FDI companies moving away from the cities to take advantage of even lower minimum wage. Now, the, the, the victory um, that I mentioned earlier, the minimum wage victory, raised the minimum wage to this three-tier thing, $54 for big cities, Saigon, uh, Hanoi, and 49 for provinces like Long An, and 44 for rural, for, 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 for rural areas, you know, um, the mountainous regions and, and rural areas. So, so that is the trend. They move away from the cities, take advantage of that. Now, the second trend of, of these FDI companies is that um, most of them are like small to medium-sized, uh, mostly from South Korea and from Taiwan. They rent facilities and they rent machinery oh. um, from, from, from companies um, in, 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 in big cities, and they hire workers to work on a couple of batches of, of um, uh, either, you know, garment, uh, fabrics, or, or shoes. Uh, <clears throat> and then after the first of the batches, they just disappear. The management just disappeared owing workers a lot of, uh, you know, back wages. Oh, wow. Yes, and, and the newspapers have been um, discovering and uh, setting light on that, on that practice. So that has been going on in, in Vietnam, especially in the South. So do you feel that the, I mean, I know you've been researching this in the context of globalization, mm-hmm. the effects on uh, third world countries. How, yeah. Do you feel that the, uh, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? In Vietnam, yes, I definitely feel so. Um, um, it is it is a kind of really um, um, sort of like a um, reflection of the race to the bottom thesis that we've been um, looking at lately. Um, um, it, it, well, a couple of things here. Um, uh, focusing on the issue of workers, um, the race to the bottom thesis basically saying that capital capital is mobile moving from place to place, from country to country, whereas labor is less mobile. I'm stressing the word less because they are, too, becoming more mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, um, the negoc- there's a power relations um, in the negotiation, there's a power relations in the bargaining between capital and labor. Capital has this, this threat of, of packing up and leave um, if labor... Uh, if workers would, um, you know, organize and, and, and demand for basic rights. And they've been doing that. Um, and you look at the trend uh, of, of capital mobility from China to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those happening in the South. And, and, and even within Vietnam, you see capital mobility, as I just mentioned, from cities, big cities, to provinces and to rural areas to suppress wages. So, so, that, so, 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 so that is going on. But, 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 but the race to... But the race to the, and I disagree with the race to the bottom thesis, is that it doesn't really weaken uh, 
um, labor organizing that much uh, because workers in Vietnam do have this kind of spontaneity, mm. spontaneous action, collective action um, against that kind of, uh, of practices. And you also have to take into consideration the role of the the role of the, the labor press in response to such labor spontaneous collective action. So that's that, that's within the kind of um, workers realm that we're talking about. But 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 yet looking broader, um, one starts to see a lot of um, inequity um, happening in Vietnamese society in in, in general. Yes. Is the rural area getting any of the benefit? I mean, some people argue that globalization benefits workers by raising their their wages, but in the rural areas, is is it changing totally changing the way people uh, work? That, that that's that's an interesting question because um, if you look at the labor force in in big cities, you see most of them are migrant workers, mm. except for some, you know. Uh, 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 some EPZs, export processing zones and industrial zones in Ho Chi Minh City where th- th- their policy is to encourage uh, workers within the, you know, the local neighborhood. But, but, but other than that, most of, majority I would say of, of the labor force in the south, in, in, in big cities in the south, are coming from the countryside. So most of them are migrant workers coming from poor areas, from Tien Giang, hmm. from uh, the north, uh, provinces from the central provinces, poor, poor areas from from all over the country. So they are they are they are congregating in big cities to work in these uh, in the EPZs. For what kind of wage they earn? Well, the, the minimum wage I mentioned earlier, not really li- livable wage. Mm-hmm. No. They cannot live with fifty four dollars a month, or forty nine dollars, or forty four for that matter. Um, they have they then have to work overtime, right? Uh, to 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 make to make a living. Um, so forced overtime would have to be defined in many ways. One, piece rate work is what they often work in this kind of thing. Minimum wage is just a rock, rock, rock bottom. Mm. So, so they work long hours. They they, they work until they drop. Um, on average, the 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 the, the, uh, the the monthly wage in big cities like about a million um, Vietnamese dong, like about you know um, sixty-seven U.S. dollars at the exchange rate of fifteen thousand dong per. A U.S. dollar um, to make to make ants meet. So so um, so so they make very low wage um, in the in big cities. Um, um, and what kind of alternatives? They don't really have real alternatives. Is there more women working than men, or or is it equal? And so I could hear you. Are there more women coming to the cities to work? Yes. Yes. I mean. In, in the kind of industries that I've been focusing on, labor-intensive industries, um, textile, garment, shoes, electronics. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, now, those are the kinds of uh, industries that most FDI companies invest in. Mm. Um, there are other types of companies, um, you know, um, um, capital-intensive, but far and few between. Um, most of uh, FDI still invested in um, labor-intensive industries, um, textile, garment, shoes, electronics. Do you see uh, Vietnam as becoming the core center uh, after India? Because some people argue that, you know, as more and more people know English, that they could move the core center industry to um, <laughs> to Vietnam. That's, that's a very interesting um, question. Um, I think that would probably be in the realm of electronics and computer programming and things like that. Right. It's so funny. I was just looking at the news this morning that um, 
there are now foreign workers coming to work in Vietnam. What, what workers? Foreign Ford. workers. Oh, wow. Uh, uh. Working at Intel, working for Intel. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so, so that is happening. Um, um, we, haven't, we haven't talked about, you know, Vietnamese workers going to work overseas in, you know, Malaysia or, or oh, right. uh, Singapore or South Korea or Taiwan, etc., etc. I heard Qatar is a big uh, draw now. Yeah, but not, but not as, but not as much as in um, Malaysia, which is an article that I'm co-writing with a with a colleague of mine. Malaysia now accounts for over 50 percent of um, 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 Vietnamese workers, you know, working overseas. I thought so, it's yeah, hmm, because I yeah. I was on a plane from Malaysia, and um, I came, I went to Vietnam from Malaysia a few weeks ago, and. Uh-huh. On the plane where all these, uh, it was like a six o'clock a.m. plane, so there was all these uh, foreign workers. I mean, all these Vietnamese workers who were in Malaysia, and oh. they were coming home, and yeah. they were talking to me in in Mandarin. Actually, the oh. it was very interesting because, and it was so early that I, 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 I could speak better Vietnamese than Mandarin <laughs> at the point really? at that point in the morning. I was like totally out of it, and why is this guy talking to me in Mandarin? And uh, <laughs> So he was trying to uh, explain his wages and all that, and it was very low, very, very low. It um, is very low, and the thing with, with, with this is my work in progress. So for my preliminary um, um, uh, uh, research on this and, and study on this is that, yes, they earn like about um, 18 ringgit a day, mm-hmm. um, which is rock the minimum wage in, in, in Malaysia, and, um, and, and about 750 ringgit per month. And, uh, it, you know, it's like about 3 million Vietnamese dome. Not much better than a skilled worker in Vietnam. Yeah, this guy was making about 500 ringgit, I think, a month. So it's oh, even, oh, even so less. Even yeah, Even okay. less. And he'd been there a year for a Taiwan firm, I think. Oh, wow. It sounds oh, like wow. something like that, yeah. Yeah, and in Malaysia, workers have to pay this kind of levy. Oh. 100 ringgit uh, a month levy. Mm. It's really ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, Malaysian workers do not have to pay that, but... But foreign workers coming to work in Malaysia for these uh, hard labor, labor-intensive work, have to pay 100 ringgit as a levy. Wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. So Not I th- to mention other kind of uh, fees <laughs> associated with that. Right, right. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so did, do you, conti- do you uh, how did you get interested in this? Uh, I know you, you were, were you born in Vietnam? Yes, ah. raised in Vietnam and left to Vietnam as a boat person. <laughs> yeah, it's a well-known fact. So I don't <laughs> say that. Um, yes, yeah, seventeen, left Vietnam as a boat person. Uh, during those years, this was one of the, you know, kind of the bleakest uh, um, years in you know Vietnamese recent history. Um, so um, came to the U.S., um, went to high school for two years, and then um, went to um, university, CSU, Long Beach. Ah. Uh, for my, my for my BA in database administration, and then um, went to work for a couple of years, and went back to graduate school full time USC, um, and then went back to teach in uh, another campus of the CSU system. Was was there support for labor studies when you were doing labor studies in grad school? No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it comes later in life actually. Um, um, I studied political economy, but 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 I have to say that there are a lot of overlapping between political economy and global political economy is what I'm doing. For sure. And, and, and labor studies. So a lot of overlapping um, between those two um, disciplines. So, so labor studies, I think, is, 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 is much more interdisciplinary. Inter? Looking at the issue of gender. 
Yeah. Now I'm looking at labor um, um, uh, management relations. So and they, they are very, very interrelated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for doing this on short notice on Labor Day. Um, uh, we're talking with, uh, we've been talking with Angie Tran uh, from Cal State University, Monterey Bay. Oh, uh, one last thing. Check yes. out the website. Yes. sbts.csumb.edu. And I've linked it on the Subversity homepage. Yeah. Yes, and so, for a list of publications there. Yes, yeah. Impressive list. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. I'll keep in touch. Uh, that was uh, Angie Tran, uh, a professor, associate professor of socio of political economy in uh, in uh, Cal State University, Monterey Bay, uh, talking about labor conditions in Vietnam and the strikes that seem to be happening quite a bit. Uh, earlier, we were talking with uh, two uh, people associated with uh, a documentary that gives us a look back at the history of. Uh, sexuality repression in uh, Boise, Idaho. Uh, we uh, talked with the director Seth Randall and uh, archivists from the uh, from the from archivists from the University of Idaho, who has who was instrumental as the historical consultant on the film for uh, that uh, looks at a sex scandal that took place in Boise, Idaho. Uh, and this is uh, these are the historical antecedents of uh, of the um, of the resignation of uh, of uh, Larry Craig in as U.S. Uh, senator last this weekend. Uh, their op-ed, Seth Rando and Alan Verders' uh, op-ed, uh, they were on the show, was in the New York Times on Saturday. Uh, Idaho's original same-sex scandal. Uh, this is Dan Chang signing off for Subversity here on KCI. The audio of the show will be online on our website at kci.org slash tilde D-T-S-A-N-G. Thanks for listening. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. <laughs>